Hi, and welcome to a new podcast called Magical Match, a place to hear about real people with real stories around the important topic of stem cell donation and transplants. In each episode, I'll be chatting with donors, recipients, those in supportive roles and people who have been affected by either a personal experience or through another's inspirational story. It is my hope that by opening the conversation around stem cell donation, we can inspire more people to sign up to the Stem Cell Register, offering more hope to those in need. Today's special guest is John Paul McGrain. He just got married in August 2019 and was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or ALL, the T cell variant, just weeks later. So, welcome, John Paul. Thank you. Thank you for coming on to the podcast. Take us back to the beginning of your story. You're you're very healthy and a very sort of fit young man. You've just got married. Everything's looking yeah. rosy. Tell us yeah. about, you know, the sort of symptoms that you were having at the time. Um, yeah, so uh, we got married um, on the 23rd of August 2019. Great day as always. And then the yeah. the next day I had kind of swollen feet and ankles, both sides, but majority, mainly on the left-hand side was probably the, the one that was bigger of the two. And I just put it down to kind of being on my feet all day, alcohol, uh, new shoes, just that, just that kind of stuff. Really, yeah. um, didn't really think much of it. The ankles kind of stayed quite swollen for the remainder of the weekend, and then we flew to uh, Rhodes in Greece, probably about a week after the wedding, probably the Wednesday or the Thursday. And over the the first couple of days of the holiday, the ankles actually reduced quite significantly in size. Right. And I just put it down to, as I said, um, kind of over usage and and alcohol use and that kind of stuff. And I thought, you know, nice relaxing holiday, get the feet up, would would kind of do the world a good. And then probably about two days, with about two days left of the holiday, uh, the left one in particular blew up again. And it was actually kind of quite painful to, to walk on and, and move. Mm. Um, and it felt quite tight and quite stiff. Um, mm. We had to fly back, which obviously wasn't very uh, comfortable. No, um, <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> um, so yeah, obviously the air pressure wasn't particularly helpful. So no. Upon return, went to work as normal. I found that wearing shoes was quite difficult because what would happen is they would kind of go down overnight and then as soon as I kind of moved around again within half an hour to an hour, they would swell up and, and blow up again. To, so it's, to it's like fluid size. around your ankle. Yeah, yeah. So it's almost like an edema, really. Right. Um, so this kind of continued for about another 10 days, two weeks. It showed periods of kind of disappearing uh, and, and easing off. And actually one kind of bit that I did miss that was before I went to before we went for the, the week away to Greece I actually did go to the doctor and asked him and he seemed to bit think it was like a bit of fluid retention so he mm. actually gave me some water tablets to okay. take thinking that would actually help the problem um, so you'd already but, had this before you were on your honeymoon. well this this was yeah so this was kind of after the between the wedding and the the week in Greece because the mm. actual honeymoon was planned for November for a, a a bigger trip right. um so this was just like kind of like a week away but it did say come back if you've got any issues so i ended up playing a game of cricket from a local cricket club it was the last game of the season mm. um but i just noticed that i was really really tired like more tired than usual i had no energy in the field couldn't kind of contribute in the way that i would normally contribute yeah so i, I said i got home that saturday and I, I just said look something's probably not quite right within the way that i'm feeling i'm going to ring the doctors on monday and make an appointment so i had a blood test on the Wednesday and I had a phone call on the Thursday from my doctor to say can you go 
to the haematology department at University Hospital Coventry in Warwickshire. And then he, did, he said, you will go though, won't you? Kind of like a, uh, a concerned manner um, yes. with a sense of urgency. Mm. And I, I said, yeah, I'll go straight away. Phone my, my wife who was actually at work because she works at the hospital so she was actually already there yes. and then I just kind of told work that I was I was going but I, I kind of probably secretly knew well I knew what haematology was and I knew what it dealt with so I, I guessed or I assumed it was some kind of blood disorder but I didn't have any kind of anticipation that it would be leukemia cause I, quite ignorantly I always thought it was more of a, a childhood disease or a children's cancer yeah I think um, I think that wrongly. is possibly a misconception you know, you do see a lot of children with ALL and certainly uncommon in adults. I think it is it approximately one in a thousand in in people's lifetimes will have the chance of being diagnosed with ALL. So it's not common <laughs> no, at all. No. <laughs> so, you know, you've been told by the doctor with a sense of urgency, hurry up and go there. So did you go the same day or? Yeah, I left. I left work immediately. And I went, I went straight to the hospital, drove there. Probably a bit of a blur, really, right. getting there and having been told that. They obviously took me into a side room with a group of, there was a, what they call a CNS nurse, who's like a clinical nurse specialist. So it was her, yeah. her field will be in haematology and specific cancers. And then there was another nurse there as well. And I think there may have been a registrar there. Um, I can't remember, that kind of bit was a, a little bit hazy, obviously. But um, they originally diagnosed me with AML. They thought it was myeloid leukemia. Right. But when they kind of did further tests and scans in the earlier in the earlier stages, they realised actually it was lymphobastic leukaemia. So, so yeah. So, and you've been obviously given this information, and you know people who are listening, and certainly people who have been touched by cancer, will understand that sort of level of sort of non-reality and shock mm. that you go into. But then you were told that it was a, a different variant. Yeah, and um, I think the the variant that I had quite rare in that it was only they probably only saw 800 cases a year from right. what the from the reading that they from the reading material that they gave me and the information that they gave me and due to kind of my age as well they said it was quite rare in my age bracket so they usually said that it'd be under 20 or kind of over 60 and they said that kind of middle bracket between 20 and 60 so I suppose 30 to 40 really was the a really uncommon kind of finding. Presumably your wife was there and you were able to talk about a, a way forward did they give you any further sort of information? information on that on that front well as i say initially they thought it was acute myeloid leukemia mm. so the treatment protocol for that would usually follow a different path to lymphobastic leukemia in that the majority if not most of or high, certainly a high percentage of, of myeloid leukemia patients will often go down the chemotherapy only route first as a point of treatment mm. when they obviously realized it was uh, lymphoblastic leukemia i think that changed our outlook so whilst the majority of the treatment i had followed w would have been similar but followed a slightly different protocol ultimately they advised me that they would prepare me for a stem cell transplant instead as a as the best chance of a complete cure and it was mainly due to the fact that the relapse chances would have been higher if i'd have just solely had chemotherapy right as a as a treatment process so next steps, you were you presumably you started your chemotherapy, and this was in 2019. Yeah, so this was September 2019. It's the 19th right. of September actually, because it was exactly four weeks or nearly exactly four weeks to the day 
right. we got married. Okay, so, so it's third, quite a quick a, turnaround, yeah. isn't it, really, when, yeah. when these things happen. Yeah. So can you talk through a little bit about, you know, where where you were and, and how things were going for you? How long were you going through treatment? How long did it take the first sort of cycle? So I was told that the initial cycle of treatment would be a four-week cycle. Right. Um, which, which was the first phase um it did have certain names i can't remember what they were called now i, I could find the protocol somewhere and, and advise but yeah so thursday they told me that i could go home and, and pack a bag but basically i would be in hospital for at least four weeks to go through the relevant treatment phase my mum and dad were actually on holiday in mexico at the time and we were umming and ahhing as to whether to kind of contact them and advise them because our fear was that they would try and ring me whilst they were away obviously just to check in Mm. And we, I would then be sitting in hospital because, as I say, the initial kind of advice was the chemotherapy would start quite early in terms of it would start kind of within a couple of days of being told. So yeah. I was admitted to the oncology ward initially until they could find an isolation room for me on the haematology ward. So they run parallel next to each other. And then I was actually started on a course of steroids originally, uh, dexamethasone it's called. So I started on those um, and then I don't think it was until actually the following Friday that I actually had my first dose of chemotherapy. So that was classed as day one, I think, in terms of the treatment protocol phase. Or it might have been day eight. I can't remember. As I said, I can bring the timetable up. But um, so, yeah, so I had every Friday seemed to be a, a chemotherapy infusion and then I would then have daily blood tests. Pretty, yeah, daily blood tests every day to monitor yeah. my levels. And then I would have other supplementary treatments on, on other days as well. So yes, but Friday seemed to be the main chemotherapy day, if I remember rightly, And then that first four weeks. Yes, the first sort of round, then presumably all your the neutrophils are crushed down to zero, aren't they? I think yeah. they, go, they go down to zero. And then at that point, it, you know, you have to be careful for infections and things like that. Yeah, um, yeah, that's right. So I was allowed visitors to begin with because obviously it was September 2019 when the, the treatment started. So it was before COVID happened. Yes. But visitors were advised that they, they shouldn't come if they had any kind of form of like cough, cold sore throat that kind of thing mm-hmm. they had to wear eight like specific medicinal aprons when they came in and they had to wash their hands before and after leaving mm-hmm. so yeah so because obviously the thing with leukemia chemotherapy treatments is that they because it's your blood that's affected and in particular your bone marrow they have to kill the good and the bad at the same time so whilst obviously the treatment is working its magic and working its wonders to to kill the bad stuff the good stuff takes a hit as well so like you said the things such as neutrophils which are your natural fighting infection markers they in a, in a normal person they would anything above one would be able to fight a cold of a reasonable level they probably usually sit at around three to four for most people on a daily basis but you could take somebody's neutrophils reading four times a day and you'd always get a different figure they would yeah. just they would just float up and down but mine were in the 0.05 kind of category so again yeah basically nothing there red blood cells obviously they reduce um which is your hemoglobin which which carries oxygen around the body so naturally that reduces you then become tired yeah so things such as like walking, you know, even sometimes kind of getting up, having a shower and, and getting back in can become quite tiring for some people. And and yeah, so they're, they're kind of the two main kind of ones that they look out for. And the I think the white blood cell markers as well is something that they look at too. Yes. So yeah. And then after when they start to come up again, because they, yeah. they do in the, in the sort of between the rounds. Yeah. 
then presumably you started to feel a little bit brighter at that point. Yeah, I mean, I never really had any particular rough stages that were kind of beyond unbearable, I would say. Mm. I think I'm quite kind of positive. So if, if somebody said to me, like, we're going to give you this treatment, it makes you feel sick. I'm like mm. determined not to feel sick. Yeah. So th- th- yeah. it's a bit of a strange one. They, they would obviously offer kind of anti-sickness meds and, and whatnot, and they do kind of work to an extent. I think sometimes they're quite helpful if maybe you're a bit unsure about something and you know that you have to have it and might just be maybe like a nerve settler or an, or an anxiety settler for some people. But I tried to avoid taking anti-sickness just as a, a normal medication and just thought that, you know, I'll only ever take it if, if there's a, a need to take it. I would probably say the first the first treatment month was bad and that was mainly because the steroids that I was on, I used to, I was taking steroids for four days and then they would have a break for three and then I would go through another four-day cycle. That was every week as part of that four weeks. Mm. What they didn't advise me was that they spike your blood sugar levels and I, I was losing quite a considerable amount of weight. So I had nutritionists and doctors telling me to eat as much as I could of, of what I wanted, basically. It was mm. basically, a, you know, imagine a free pass to say, eat as many biscuits, chocolate, <laughs> crisps. And actually, you, you'd be surprised, but you get a bit bored. Well, I was going to say, it would be great in our house. <laughs> yeah, but you do actually get a bit bored. It's, I suppose mm. I'd liken it to going on an all-inclusive holiday when you're like, oh, I can have a fry-up every day for breakfast. But probably after day two or three, you're actually a bit like, can I have something different? And yeah, yeah so they didn't obviously advise that my blood sugar levels were spiking. That then in turn meant that I actually had hyper reactions instead of a hypo because they were too high, right. which meant that everything became extra sensitive. And then that then in turn led to complications with the mouth, such as uh, really bad ulcers, oral thrush mucositis mucositis yes yeah, yeah. so things such as sw- even swallowing drinking became a bit tricky so then that then accelerated the weight loss then it was a bit of a vicious cycle really because I then had nutritionists then coming back in saying well you're not eating the right things and stuff and I was like well I know what to eat as a, a fit and healthy you know relatively healthy guy mm. I said I can't you know it's not enjoyable so I think the main thing was I just tried to keep my fluids up as much as I could and then yeah. anything that I could get by on really anything that was soft soups like the pasta and sauce packets that you find in the supermarkets noodles ice cream ice lollies yeah. but yeah it was uh it was a bit restrictive and obviously you, because of the neutrophil count being low there's certain things that you can't eat anyway so fruit for an example most people if you're in hospital will always bring you grapes just a yeah a stereotypical grape delivery and i can't with eat i couldn't eat yeah with a magazine i've got, got a lot of magazines books and papers <laughs> puzzle books i was an arrow word king at one point we used to do the arrow word every day but um oh, <laughs> yeah it's amazing um, what you get used to when you're sat in a yeah. full room where you can't go out yeah where well, you're trying uh, to pass kind of nine or ten hours a day yeah. people have been grapes and i couldn't eat the grapes because they're not a fruit that's encapsulated in a peel so even if you wash them they're, they're not you know they, they, there's a chance that they can carry bacteria so yeah. things like bananas oranges you know you can peel the rind off an apple that kind of thing were acceptable but yeah. i couldn't eat the grapes so yeah there was again restrictions in that term as to what i could and couldn't eat things such as kind of like your a subway sandwich i'm not really a subway fan but i wouldn't be able to eat that because it sits out under a Lamp. whilst it sits in a chilled area yeah it sits out there so it's yeah. or if somebody bought a mcdonald's and brought that in the trans you know the chances that it's cooked and then it's cooled down in in temperature and then it comes in so yeah so so things like that then became a bit of a battle and i think you know jamie oliver did a big thing about going into schools but i think he needs to maybe 
revisit hospitals and stuff because i would say yeah i think that sometimes you can be on a ward where you can have somebody go out and prepare you some food in a small kitchen which is great fabulous but it doesn't mean necessarily that you still have that sort of openness of what you want to eat it is quite restrictive and especially if you're in hospital all the time and you're just dashing down to friend or a family who's going to go and get you something quite often it's sort of pre-packaged sandwiches and things that aren't prepared fresh and that can pose a bit of an issue can't it and it's it can be quite boring like you say the the foods you can't get too excited about it can you after a while no and the, the other difficulties as well you have to choose your food for the following day so they come around with a menu and say this is your menu well after a week the menu restarts so you know by the time you've been in two weeks you know that <laughs> Wednesday is, is like a sausage roll or yeah, it's a bit of a it's yeah. a bit of a struggle and I'd say when you're at home you can eat and drink when you want and what you want but yeah. when you're in hospital you're limited to certain times as to what when you can have that particular food yeah and, and when you you're can on have, chemo you yeah you want to eat you, it all hours don't you yeah that's it sometimes it might be two in the morning and you might be like hungry you might just want a sandwich or something yeah they can kind of have like accommodate that but ultimately you know it's, it's not quite as, difficult and did you did yeah. you find with the chemotherapy did you find you'd get hungry and then if it, the food didn't arrive and you wanted a particular thing if it didn't arrive within like 30 seconds the feeling had gone um, some people talk about that where it's either they're not hungry anymore or they fancy something different no no i never really kind of had like the bit where i felt hungry then the hunger would go away i suppose the only thing that i struggled with in it was more around the mouth thing really was i would prep by having certain painkillers and that things I was allowed and mouthwashes and then they would say breakfast would be at quarter past eight and then mm. breakfast would come early and it's like well I haven't had a chance to or breakfast would be late so then the painkillers wet so and then as well I'm a project manager so I like things to have a bit of a structure to them like and it was outside of my control and then when I realized it was outside of my control and I couldn't do anything about it then I was just like well I'll just carry on but you know you're trying to mitigate the fact that you've got a sore mouth by taking medicinal mouthwashes painkillers numbing agents to kind of help you eat a bit more and then you still can't do it. No, frustrating. it's frustrating, isn't it? I can hear that in your descriptions and your yeah. your the way you're discussing it. Yeah. You went through how many rounds of chemotherapy before you went into the stem cell tra- or workup for stem cell transplant? Uh, there was quite a lot, really. So I followed the ALL. It's called ALL UK 14 protocol. So there was the initial four weeks. They then sent me home when I was well enough to go home. I actually had to go back in because I picked up a, a spike to temperature. So I went back in for five days until they'd give me a course of antibiotics and made sure that I wasn't having any temperatures. And then for my next four weeks of treatment, I actually did it as an outpatient. So I would go to the haematology day unit, which was adjacent to the, the haematology ward. Right. I would go in for a day. They would come, they'd say, come in at this time. I would have a set infusion. I would see the consultant, they'd do my bloods, etc. Go through a few questions, make sure everything was okay. And then I would have that treatment and then go home, which was obviously much, much better. Because I was recovering at home. And I, as I say, I could eat and drink yeah. in the comfort of my you own home. You know where everything is, don't you? Yeah. You know, you can relax yeah. properly. I think it's probably a little bit more conducive as well. Because like, whereas in hostel, you feel like you have to ask if you want water or a cup of tea. But at home, you'll just get up and do it yourself. And then it means that you're probably a little bit more independent and you actually do things. So you're not as kind of static and stationary. And you know, yeah. I could also go for a walk in the fresh yeah. air if I felt I was able to. And obviously my wife was off work with me through that time. So, you know, it was good to actually get fresh air and go for a yeah. walk when Yeah, Well, it helps with your mindset as well, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so the second block was as a an outpatient. And then I think that took me to, I'm just trying to think. So <laughs> September to October, then probably I had a two-week gap. In the two-week gap between the first and second round, I had a bone marrow extraction to see 
how effective the treatment had been right. from round one. Um, okay. But I had to wait until my neutrophils had naturally gone up to a certain number before they could do the extraction because obviously they have to go into your back and then there's a risk of infection because yes. you've got an I think open wound. I think it was, is it 0.5 or something? I mean, yeah, some people will understand plate... what we're talking about and, so, and other people won't. But Yeah, and your platelets as well, which are obviously your, your blood clotting ability. So yes. they naturally thicken the blood and, and help it. So, for example, when your platelets are low, if you get a cut, it will just run out because it's, it's really thin. Yeah. Um, so obviously your platelets and your neutrophils have to be of a certain level before they can do that. Mm. So yeah, I had a bone marrow extraction and then round two, and then I had a further bone marrow extraction at the end of round two. Mm. So the results from the first one that showed 7% leukemia cells, so 7 per 100 Okay, and that has and gone then, down considerably, hadn't it? Yeah, I think it was 70 on the mm. initial diagnosis. So obviously a marked improvement. And then yeah. on the next one, there is a status that they call MRD negative, which is molecular remission. And effectively, everybody's bone marrow will produce bad cells, but the bone marrow is there to function so that the, the good cells will combat that bad cell and kind of make it go away. When your bone marrow malfunctions, it, obviously those bad cells multiply and they, they go up exponentially, so they, they don't just kind of go up in small bits, they go 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, so they double. And the, the figure I think they look for is 0.001%, so it's like one, it's either 1 in 1,000 or 1 in 10,000. Yeah. And I'd actually reached that molecular emission stage at after round two, and that was just before, it wasn't long before Christmas that we found that out, so obviously it was quite nice news that's, um, that's very good positive yeah. news isn't it to receive yeah. just before christmas yeah absolutely and then the round the third phase was a, a five-day infusion of this horrible stuff called methotrexate the reason why i had to go in for that one is because they monitor your ph levels so they would give you the methotrexate over a 24-hour infusion and then they ask you to then monitor your ph levels through uh, urine extraction and then they then give you a, a bag of fluid that goes in every four hours and before your next bag goes in you have to keep doing a like a almost like a litmus paper test and then once that infusion has gone through your body you, your body has to your blood levels have to show a certain level before they can send you home so it can be a maximum of five days i think i managed to get home after three Goodness. my body obviously kicked out relatively quickly but yeah. i did have a an allergic reaction to a one of the treatments which i'd had before and never had any issues it was called asparaginase initially i kind of felt like you get that warm wave when you're going to be sick yes but it was like instant it was like i, th oh. I just had a cup of tea and i thought oh it might just be that i've had a b bit of a reaction to that sometimes that sit on your stomach too nice but within five yeah. minutes of it going into my system my body was just like and had that warmth and it just kind of raised and i actually had a i felt like i had an ulcer in my mouth but it was an anaphylaxis shock but it was a slow one so oh it was obviously pyroton etc but i lost a lot of fluids through the reaction and at one stage i went to the toilet and i actually fainted fell forwards and smashed my head off the floor oh my but goodness my, me yeah my wife thought i'd had a heart attacks obviously it was just the way that i fell so yeah called the alarm bells etc and luckily it was just a vasophagal which is just a, a somebody fainting and luckily i fell forwards instead of backwards because obviously backwards on, on yeah. the skull would have been a bit dangerous and i suppose with my platelets and my blood counts etc any kind of internal bleeds would have then further complicated things so so, yeah. I love the way you explain something that is actually quite serious for many people to be listening to with a sense of real calm and positivity almost. Just that yeah. sort of strength of character that I can hear in what you're saying, because right from the beginning, it's very clear to me that you are a person who is just go out and get everything and 
you know, it's all opportunities and positivity. And even in these situations, which can be quite complex, it's nice to hear just that your outlook, your positive outlook, the way that you're speaking, even though obviously these things are yeah. quite scary at the time. I should imagine your wife was quite concerned. Well, yeah, well, I always say I had the easy job because I just had to sit there and take the treatment whereas my poor wife had to take like shield all the messages and phone calls and stuff and obviously people did message me directly but I'd often be a bit like if I don't need to speak to somebody today I just you know I can just blank them and I'm sure they would understand if I don't reply to them straight away whereas obviously my wife probably bore the brunt a bit more than I did because people would constantly be like oh how's JP today how's JP today and it's like well he hasn't really changed much from yesterday you know it's it's a long (laughs) a long process but um but yeah yeah I always say I had the easy job because just had to kind of sit there and get on with it really didn't didn't have much choice it's either you know some people are less fortunate than others in terms of their outcomes but ultimately you do as much as you can to survive don't you so you know if it's a choice of life or death then you're always going to take the the life option even if that percentage isn't as high as you'd like it to be or the outcome might not be as uh you know as as frequent as it should be specific treatments that's uh, quite an incredible attitude which is lovely to hear so you went through the third round and then yeah uh, what point did you hear that either the consultants and were looking for a match or what was the process there for you so they actually started the process very early on in the treatment phases so i was told in the round one that they would be looking for a donor and a match so that process was initiated by the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham because right. the hospital that I was having my treatment at only do autonomous stem cell transplants. So that is where somebody has their own cells taken out of them and then put back in. I needed, I might have explained that wrong, but I needed no, a right, right. allergenic, I think the term was. I've, I've forgotten I think it's now. allergenic. Yeah, where I, I needed a matched donor. So yeah, so Queen Elizabeth is the place to go for that kind of medicine they're they're more advanced they've got a bigger team so they started the process and i think i was probably part way through round two where i actually had a consultation appointment with a different consultant in in birmingham he explained the process and, and what they look for and there is like 10 specific tissue type matches that they want 10 out of 10 is obviously the best option fortunately we've we found somebody but the, the process does take quite a long time and then obviously whilst that's going on they try and keep you in the state of molecular emission so you just kind of go through the the protocol again you just repeat it without the need for the the methotrexate infusion because i'd already been through that one but they did kind of find a way to get that in your body through an intrathecal process as well so they're really clever in the terms of in terms of what they do and what they recommend in the next steps mm. but then covid hit as well so yes yeah, so covid was was sort of march time wasn't it 2020 yeah um, so i've always got a vivid memory that i was in somewhere when crufts was on the telly I don't yeah. like. I don't know why that's so kind of like a strong memory, but I remember seeing a group of friends because somebody else sadly was going through the same treatment right. at the same time, right. and they'd not long come out of hospital. And I remember it was that kind of time where people were unsure or feeling unwell about picking up colds and flus and whatnot. And you know, we didn't really kind of think much of it at the time, but when you kind of look back, that was probably end of January, early February when when that was on the telly but then you kind of march hit and you realized that this was quite serious and mm. I got obviously got I was obviously one of those that got the dreaded text that I had to to shield so yes. uh, so yeah so I was, I was kind of shielding anyway to a to an extent whereby I would only leave the house or go to places if my, my neutrophil count was of a, a decent number my, my blood counts and I felt well enough but this meant obviously full shielding where I couldn't see anybody so yeah, yeah. 
it's concerning and it's also it's not easy for people I think that have got low immunity and are vulnerable or seen as vulnerable or in vulnerable situations yeah. health wise it's hard and I think it does well for the rest of us who are at the moment healthy to yeah. sort of be aware of that in these situations I think it's it's really important yeah and um, as well if you consider other transplants so as a stem cell transplant whilst being a transplant there is an element that you have to take an immunosuppressant drug as part of the recovery mm. but a lot of obviously organ transplants such as livers kidneys hearts they are on an anti-rejection medicine for the rest of their life so ultimately there will be people out there that have had transplants not just recently but 10 12 15 years ago that are effectively immunosuppressed constantly yeah. and they would have had to shield as well so you know it's, it doesn't just affect people having treatment at that particular phase but people that may have had something previously so yeah and it can be yeah. like you say it's just it's ongoing it's a detrimental sort of a way yeah. of life so you heard that you presumably found a match yeah and how did you feel about that when you when you got that news were you as calm as you are when you're talking now or <laughs> did you feel um, quite excited <laughs> well i was obviously really happy about you know mm. that i had this opportunity to you know they found somebody that gave me an opportunity to basically grow a new immune system it's obviously an amazing, amazing thing for somebody to do. And myself, I was actually on the register myself and my wife's still on the register because we'd actually signed up just a couple of years previous. We were at a, I think we were just at a rugby match and at half time and they were doing a, a plea. There was somebody local that oh, needed a stem cell transplant. Was it Paddy's plea, I think you were yeah. signing up for yeah. Paddy's plea? Yeah, so, and it was, it was so easy. It was literally just kind of two swabs, like almost like a cotton bud swab of the mouth. It just goes into a bag and they just send it away and they just add you to the register. So, yes, I mean, for something that's so straightforward, I mean, the mm. actual process of donation is a bit more complex. And but I think a lot of people don't realise that now 90% of donations are through blood extraction. And there's only one in 10, which is actual bone marrow extraction, where yeah. obviously they have to go in and, and take it from the bone. So it is yeah. the process has become scientifically, obviously, much more advanced and a lot, a lot more streamlined and efficient. But, yeah, I was absolutely over the moon. Did obviously mean that I had to go back into hospital and prep for the stem cell transplant which is probably the worst part but I suppose at least with this time it was like knowing that there was an end goal and then knowing that like hopefully when you leave that hospital other than kind of going back for, for regular checkups and, and treatment checks and whatnot that's that was effectively it whereas before you know it was just kind of you felt like you sometimes a bit stuck in limbo until you knew that that goal was in sight so yeah yes well it's that waiting isn't it and yeah. um, I think here is important to say that anybody who is listening who is 16 to 30 you can go to Anthony Nolan anthonynolan.org and anybody who is 17 to 55 I think it is with DKMS yeah. you can go to www.dkms.org.uk and you can find out lots of information about how the process works and as you were saying it's 90% is sort of peripheral stem cell donation where your sort of your blood is taken out of one arm siphoned through a very special machine and all the stem cells are separated and then your blood goes back into the other arm and it takes That's about right. four to six hours as I understand it um so it is quite akin to sort of just a, a, a blood donation and it's yeah. very very easy to do I think the only preparation they have to do beforehand other than a medical check to make sure they're they're fit and well to donate is they're given an injection called a GCSF injection and it's effectively like a stimulant to your bone marrow so they will put it in your system and it will make yes. your bone marrow kind of generate more cells than it needs to so you will I did have them occasionally sometimes to give my neutrophils a boost but it does make your bones ache and sometimes you do get headaches off the back of that right. but they, I think you have them for three or four days prior to a donation just to make sure that they can get enough that's the only precursor I think and in, then obviously you're going through 
you have your stem cell transplant. And so when, when did you have your stem cell transplant? June the 2nd was the official transplant day. So I'll be technically got my second birthday coming up next month. Yeah. If he went Just from a few there. Weeks. Yeah, not not too long. So a bit like the Queen now, got two birthdays, which is nice. Very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's the preconditioning treatment for the stem cell transplant is pretty rough again whereas before like your bone marrow would be flat just because of the treatment it wouldn't never really hit a level of zero but this is ultimate kind of strip your body down and, and really flatten your immune system so there is absolutely nothing there it is bare to the bone mm. you then have an infusion so the stem cell transplant is actually really simple a lot of people thought i was literally just going in for like day surgery and coming home and i was like it's sadly it's not that straightforward the transfusion didn't hurt at all it was basically like having a if anybody's ever received a blood transfusion it was uh, effectively hooked up to a i had a hickman line for the for my treatment so it was hooked up to like a pipe that sticks out of your chest and then they just infuse it in the stem cells are actually frozen in a freezer and they defrost them and i think i had in total potentially six transfusions of stem cells really weird they're not the color that i thought they'd be they're like a salmon pink color they are a weird and color aren't they yeah and they i found i thought that they smelled like sweet corn but yeah. well, hopefully that's not put too many people off <laughs> yeah they had a weird weird smell against them yeah i can remember that in the ward of the where we were as well it i don't know whether it's the stem cells or what they're stored in but it does smell mm. of sweet corn strange Strange. It is a bit strange. Yeah. <laughs> One of the strange, wonderful things about stem cell yeah. donation here. <laughs> and so once you'd had the infusion, how was the, I suppose, the aftermath? How was it afterwards when you were sort of finishing the treatment? And I say that carefully because you're not actually finishing, finishing treatment. You're having a stem cell transplant and then you're moving on to the next milestone. Because there can be things called, um, it's GVHD, isn't it? Graft versus host disease and, and other things that are potential issues around when you have a stem cell transplant, infections and things like that along the way. So the, the preconditioning was a mixture of chemotherapy and total body radiation. Mm -hmm. So then the side effects of that don't necessarily kick in for seven to ten days post mm -hmm. that. By that time, you've had your stem cell transplant and then obviously they're then giving you certain medications in the kind of forthcoming weeks until that you're strong enough to go home. So usual side effects, hair loss, mouth ulcers, particularly, you know, just nausea, sometimes tract infections. So because obviously you've got mouth ulcers and mucositis, the mucositis can travel down. So it can go as low as your stomach, stuff like that. And yeah, they just kind of monitor you and provide you with certain medicines. One of the medicines that they give you to help combat the GVHD is a, a medicine called cyclosporin, which is a, an immunosuppressant. So I think I received it as an infusion initially. And then as I kind of progressed through and they needed to kind of either reduce the dose or increase the dose at certain phases, I, I was having it in a tablet form. Really oddly, they the tablets smell like cannabis. I actually googled the ingredients to see if there's any form of like cannabis in them. I, honestly, you could like you could open the packet and you'd be like crikey, like I hope someone doesn't pull me over in the car with these in the car because they they smell. <laughs> that could be yeah, that could be a little bit. Uh... Yeah, but I, I was probably in for another three to four weeks post transplant, so I was probably in to in for five weeks in total with the build up, and then my neutrophils hit a certain number, so they said I could go home. But I think one of the biggest struggles I found was the fact that you're just so static in your room. You just almost feel like there's a lot of muscle wastage and things like everyday tasks just become so much harder. So I, I would like get up and shower pretty much every day, try and kind of get myself into some routine. Sometimes like getting up, walking to the shower, showering and then coming back to the, like, the bed and getting changed. That would kind of like tire you out. <laughs> 
And it's yeah. like, why am I so tired? I mean, I think one of the things that maybe I would have maybe found beneficial, I don't know if it worked for all people, is some kind of like treadmill or something in a room where even if it was just like a five minute or a 10 minute walk on a really, really slow pace would have helped kind of keep some of that stamina and build build some kind think, of muscle back. Yeah, but, I think that's a good idea. And I also think that a lot of people, because you're you're basically going back to the stage of a baby where you've got, yeah. you know, you've got a brand new immune system. Yeah. So your body is working incredibly hard. Yeah. I think it's a testament to your sort of strength of character and your fitness that the desire to still you know get up every day and have a shower or do something positive so that you are moving and keeping your body going is a really good positive thing and I think the idea of perhaps getting on a treadmill for somebody who feels fit anyway and that sort of desire is a really positive step but I don't necessarily think it's perhaps the same for everybody because your body is working really hard to recover yeah that's right I mean I, I just found in general that kind of like walking to so when I, when I returned home, like walking around the block was like the most difficult thing mm. I'd ever done. I think I had to stop like two or three times, mm. but I kind of persevered with it. So I suppose from that aspect, I suppose it was more for if there was an element to kind of help recovery, because you don't see a physio, but you, you kind of legs and body do become almost that weak to a point where they, they are almost heavy mm. to move. And you again, you're tired through blood counts and, and all that kind of thing. But don't get me wrong, there probably was the odd day where I just lay in bed all day. And, but then, you know, the next step, like, right, I did that yesterday, so let's kind of try and change it today. But From everything you've said so far, I find that really hard to believe that you actually... No, it was, they, were, they, were the, they were the odd day where you would just feel so grotty and rubbish and yeah. sorry for yourself. And But as I say, like, I, luckily I had lots of friends and obviously my wife and we would video call every day because, again, it was COVID, so I was in an isolation room. So the only people that I was allowed to see were the staff members. Yes. Um, in the hospital. And that's that's isolating in itself. I'm yeah. sure it would have been quite difficult. Yeah. Sometimes there's a lot of things that you see kind of like on the news and the media and stuff. But until you've been in that situation, like it's it's so hard just to try and distract yourself, take your mind off it. And you know, there's only so much you can do in terms of like phone calling people and puzzle books and films and Netflix and, you know, reading. It's yeah. uh, it does become a bit of a monotonous cycle. But you, as I say, you've got that end goal. So ultimately, yeah. I was just like, I need to get home as fast as I can because I know that I'm going to recover better at home. Anything that I can do to get that extra 2% today or 10% that I need mm. to get closer to home, I'll just do it. And you did, you know, you seem to have recovered incredibly well. I mean, you, you sort of went home and then how was it back at home? Um, I had a period where I went back in for a week. So I spiked the temperature and obviously talked about it before because of the immune system, the temperature could mean an infection. Could just mean that you something's not quite right, but because your immune system's so low, you can't take that risk. So I had to go back into hospital. They couldn't find anything. The only thing that they suspected that it might be was a, a virus called a BK virus, which relates to the passing of waste. Um, so going to go into the toilet effectively right. and what can happen is that can build up to a certain extent where it makes it painful and it actually stops your your kidneys and stuff working mm-hmm. as well as they should do so they're not flushing out your body or it feels like you might need to go to the toilet but when you go there you can't do it so probably yeah. similar to a really bad water infection I suppose mm-hmm. there was elements that it could be that but then they, they kept sending me for scans and stuff on my liver because they said there was like these slight nodules or kind of lumps on there that that showed up in a scan but they again they just couldn't find anything so ultimately in the end I I wasn't having temperatures and then I felt like I was just not recovering as well as I should be so I just said like you know is there any reason why you're keeping me here and they're like well we'd just like to keep for another day so I actually discharged myself and went home 
Oh, and I haven't been back since. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the only time I have been back is obviously for checkups. But yeah, it just got yeah. to a point where I was just getting so frustrated because I couldn't do anything. You, I wasn't allowed to leave the ward because obviously because of COVID. So I couldn't even go down to, to the shop. Yeah. Um, okay. They weren't keen on me leaving my room to walk up and down the corridor even for a bit of exercise. Well, no, because so. I, I should imagine with, with COVID going on, yeah, uh, especially in that first sort of wave. Yeah. And the, there were elements of things that I didn't agree with at the hospital, like certain people would get takeaways delivered, which, again, I didn't agree with because I don't think the patients would be given the right information around food and the dangers of takeaways and whatnot. Like w one of the things that really used to frustrate me at the hospital in particular where I had my stem cell transplant was they would give me black pepper with my dinner every day and they would put it on my tray and I used to say to them like you do know that if you're neutropenic you can't have black pepper because there's a uh, the spores of it can then cause lung infection yes. and they're like oh no we didn't know that and I was like well can you take it off the tray and just make sure it's not on anybody's tray like it's just an easy swap but every day they would still have black pepper on your tray and I was just like <sighs> do you know what if something like even if the bag split and it was like corns do you know it's just something as small as that some just little things you know educating people but yeah so long story short i discharged myself and fortunately i didn't have to go back for anything else other than for my checkups and no, that's, that repeat medicine so amazing so afterwards you've done quite a lot of positive things around fitness since you have had your stem cell transplant mm. and you've been on a run the fitness element was probably the hardest part but it was also the probably the key part to recovery really mm. so walking was the first thing that i was able to do continuously so my wife was excellent like she would get me out every day and say like we're going to go around the block and then it, it just that week it might just be the block only but it would be the block every day and then the week after would be two blocks or the week after that would be like a half a mile so I kind of felt it appropriate really to we spotted a, a challenge so this was quite a considerable time after and it would have marked just over a year after the, the stem cell transplant we spotted an event called Race to the Stones which is along Britain's oldest trail path that exists today right. And where is that? I think you start near the Cotswolds, like Oxford Way, and you end up oh, yeah. at a place called Avebury Rock or Avebury Stones. Oh, I know, I know uh, Avebury, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you finish there, but the path actually continues on for another 30 miles or so, I, wow. I believe. And so we thought that would be a really kind of good kind of like challenge and way to do something positive. So at the same time, we raised funds for cure leukemia so there was a team of four of us yes. and we went on numerous training walks we got some kind of shirts together did ran a couple of competitions th just things like blackout cards we did a competition for the masters golf yes. stuff like that so yeah. i think we raised in total just shy of seven thousand pounds between the four of us seven thousand pounds yeah um absolutely incredible yeah it was, a, it, was a, it was a good effort and it was it was pretty evenly distributed as well so it wasn't as if like you know one person kind of surged ahead and, and got way more than anyone else it was yeah. pretty much the same from every person and then sadly i actually got flagged as a close contact for oh, no. covid which was <laughs> Oh, Obviously, no. at the time, you had to isolate for 10 days. And I was flagged like the week before I was due to travel down and take on this challenge. So I couldn't actually physically go and enter it. So oh. two of the two of the team members carried on as normal and they attempted it. And my best friend, who was actually my best man at my wedding, said that he would not do it and he would walk with me. So we arranged to do it locally around oh. the local park. Fabulous. Um, so we spent the probably the hottest weekend of last year in July. Oh my goodness. Walking around our local park, which I think we calculated was like 18 lap a day, um, oh. which is pretty boring. <laughs> so yeah, 
So 18 laps a day. Yeah, it was 100 kilometers the total distance, which oh is my goodness me. 62 and a bit miles, I think yeah. it is. So we did it over, and our plan was always to do it over two days. So the, the actual race itself, you can do one day, two days, you can run it. Yeah, I think something ridiculous, like there's a, a guy that won it last year. He ran it over two days, but he obviously stopped his time. And then he had the next day to go back and do the next 50 kilometers. That's I think he did something silly, like it wasn't very long. I'm going to say something like 11 or 12 hours. Wow. Maybe even shorter than that. Oh, but yeah. Me. So 50 kilometers, 31 miles. So it's a bit longer than a marathon. So actually might have done each 50 kilometers in kind of like four hours each. Yeah. It might have been, it took him eight hours, but yeah. So some people run it, some people walk it, get a lot of people that sometimes withdraw. It's a real, it's a real difficult race and challenge, but we thought, you know, as a used walking <laughs> as a way of recovering, we could take it, do a bit more. I was going to say, why go, why go small when you can totally yeah. go large? I mean, you know... <laughs> I think that's that's just so incredible, isn't it? Amazing. When you think about everything that you've experienced in a short space of time and the impact that that has had on your body and on your life, and yet you've had a donor that's an unrelated donor who's come along and given you this amazing opportunity, which you've grabbed with both hands and gone off to do still straight away raising funds for Cure Leukemia. Was it Cure Leukemia? Mm. It was Cure Leukemia, yeah. So they're, yeah, they're a relatively local charity. They're linked to Birmingham Hospital, but they do, they kind of raise funds for, so their main aim is to raise enough money so that they can have clinical nurse specialists in trials so they can go and find trial treatments. So trial treatments that necessarily wouldn't have been available for people, they want to make it so that people can just have it as a an affordable form of treatment. So on the NHS effectively, but they have they needed the fund to obviously go and do the research to make sure they got the right trials in place. I think that's absolutely incredible, and yeah. it just goes to show, you know, you're a, a recipient that would, you know, that yeah. I'm talking to today, and it just goes to show what if if anybody's listening who's thinking about signing up to the stem cell register, this is the sort of story that we all aspire to, that we all want to hear, that we all hope for for everybody going through this sort of grueling treatment. So if you had anything that you could say to anybody that was looking to sign up, how would you encourage, what would you say to somebody knowing everything that you've been through yourself? I just think, just go out there and do it. You know, I think the feeling that you would probably get from helping somebody, but in such a, a simple way to do it, really, as I said, when I, when I said I signed up myself kind mm. of previously, it was literally kind of two cotton bud style swabs of the mouth just to make sure that they've got you actually physically on that register and then you know you being available to go through that that process to mm. actually donate at a later point in time and and potentially give someone that's struggling a an actual complete cure and let them kind of rebuild and live their life again and I'd, I'd ultimately say as well that get as many ethnicities and heritages on there as much as you can because I was very fortunate in that I'm a, a white Caucasian male mm. so finding a match for me would be quite common ultimately yeah. or you know or I'd probably have a much higher chance of finding a match in a much quicker space of time. Whereas, you know, if you take, for example, I think there's a guy called Peter McCleave who's been doing a lot of stuff for the, the stem cell register. Yeah. I think he's got a, an ethnicity that's like part Portuguese and part something else. So it's obviously a really rare mixed heritage. And finding a match for somebody like that it would be is really, really difficult. And I think he's actually still searching for a, a match for himself. Um, I believe so at the moment. Yeah. But yeah, but he's obviously doing all this work to to make sure that there's there's you know more and more donors on the on the list every day. So yeah, anybody from any ethnicity, I would I would encourage to sign up. Yeah. Um, because yeah. you don't know as and when 
And also, my kind of other attitude would be, you don't know if it's ever you that might need it. If you're not, you know, willing to give it, but you're willing to receive it, I think ultimately you you should be willing to to give. Mm-hmm. And it's literally, like, as I've said, a, a blood transfusion. It's it's nothing in the grand scheme of things. I think that's amazing. I think this is a really positive way to end our podcast this afternoon. So thank you ever so much for coming on and giving us your time and talking so openly and honestly about everything that you've been through and putting a very genuine positive spin on it. So this brings this episode to a close. I'm very grateful to my guest today, John Paul, for giving up his time and sharing his story with us. I hope you found today's conversation both interesting and inspiring. As a sparkling new podcast, we are looking for guests to share their inspirational stories. And if you have one, we'd love to hear from you. You can follow us on Twitter at Magical Match Pod and do get in touch if you'd like to join me to share your stem cell story. If you've enjoyed listening to today's episode, do like and subscribe to the podcast. And if you have time, write us a review. We'll be back again very soon with a new episode. In the meantime, do consider signing up to the Stem Cell Register because you could be someone's magical match. Thank you for listening. Magical Match Podcast is an OB Hive production, originally inspired by a conversation with Andy Mitchell and other like-minded individuals. Magical Match Podcast is hosted and produced by Ginny Walker with audio production by James Walker and music by Cobalt Ocean.